0: Are right, you ready for this? Ready. Woo-hoo! Hey, everybody. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We have a abbreviated version of the podcast for you. Uh, Actually, it's kind of a preview for Device Talks West, which is happening next week, (laughs) October 19th and 20th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Uh, If you're not going well, shame on you. You're going to miss a great, great time. Uh, Thank you to the hundreds of folks who are coming. And I'm looking forward to seeing you all there. And uh, thank you to the hopefully hundreds more who are still registering and will join us on uh, Wednesday and Thursday, again, at the Santa Clara Convention Center. We will have uh, two days of conversations centered around uh, product development, innovation, investment. I'm going to be uh, uh, moderating a panel of, uh, of VCs. We'll talk about how they're viewing each technologies, AI, robotics. We'll, we'll go work through it all to understand how VCs are viewing those opportunities, We'll be talking about supply chain. Chris Newmarker is uh, is leading a conversation about that. We'll have a, a few presentations about product design and R&D, uh, including a panel that I'm moderating uh, with Sean Hooley. Uh, we'll, we'll talk with uh, leading medical executives at medical device companies about how they're sort of engaging with the clinical side of the house. And connecting or liaising with the uh, liaisoning, uh, liaising, communicating in between <laughs> the, uh, the 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 healthcare professionals and uh, uh, and research and development folks in their own house, trying to help the R and D folks see what the problems are on the clinical side. Uh, we we've got many many conversations. I don't have the agenda in front of me because I feel like it's burned into my brain. But uh, there's a lot going on for folks who want to develop. Uh, new devices, who want to develop devices that can be used at home, who want to get insights on where fields like robotic surgery are going. We have a couple of great robotics events that are connected with us that aren't connected to robotic surgery, but will be directed at the robotics industry and certainly will be essential meetings. That is the uh, Robo Business meeting and the Field Robotics Engineering Forum business. I'm sorry, Field Robotics Engineering Forum conference. So uh, there's a lot going on, forgive me, I'm, I'm tired. It's late here on Friday night, but I really wanted to get a podcast out to you. So uh, it's going to be a great couple of days, and I've said that a few times, but uh, I really do mean it, and I hope you'll join us. Go to uh, devicetalks.com to register. I will also be uh, leading a couple of conversations, and that's where we are today. I'll be on day one interviewing Gary Guthart, the CEO of Intuitive. And we'll be talking about where intuitive is headed, how it's preparing for the competition that is coming, and how that sort of move from or transition from being first mover to leader of a pack uh, will impact intuitive. So what I wanted to do today is run a bit of the interview I did with Gary Guthard for our first episode of Intuitive Talks, which came out last year. And uh, in that, in this clip that goes on for about 10 minutes, so Gary Guthart really sort of gives the origin story for intuitive. So uh, this this will sort of bring you up to the point where we're going to pick up our conversation, more or less, uh, at Device Talks West. That's happening in the afternoon of day one. So uh, it'll be at 1.20, uh, we'll say just after lunch, on uh, on day one. Uh, and uh, I hope you'll join us there. We're going to talk with Gary again about what Intuitive is doing to respond to the coming tide or the rising tide of competition. So, after the excerpt with Gary Guthart, uh, I'll play a portion of a, an interview I did with Leslie Trigg, CEO of Outset Medical, who of course is uh, which of course has been a leader in the hospital or hospital care at home movement, uh, developing their tablet device and, uh, and uh, helping dialysis patients get that care at home, freeing them from dialysis clinics, freeing them from from the onerous uh, requirements of dialysis. And uh, in the clip that will play after uh, Gary Gothard's clip, you'll hear uh, what Leslie discovered when she became CEO of Outset Medical and why the mission outsets mission is so important. And uh, I'm really, really, uh, really enjoying my conversations with, with Leslie. I was listening to the podcast and laughing along with her, uh, her recount of, uh, of her entry into MedTech. So I'm actually going to include links to both interviews, uh, the full episodes. If folks want more, they can uh, go to your uh, podcast description and you can, uh, you can listen to the whole episodes. You can find them both on device as well. So, uh, I will, in between the two episodes, uh, excuse me, the two interviews, I will uh, give you a little more information about the uh, about the event, which includes uh, an outset-led conversation uh, that I'm I'm really excited to hear about. So, or really excited to to uh, to have them at the at the show. So, without any further delay, I'd like to start this interview or the portion of this interview with Gary Guthart. He is the CEO of Intuitive Surgical, and again, he'll be our keynote in the afternoon of October 19th at Device Talks West at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Gary Guthart, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Thanks for having me, Tom. Pleasure to be here. It's uh, it's going to be a great series. Really happy to be focusing on uh, on intuitive, and we're going to be uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of different aspects, both technical and clinical. But uh, we really kind of want to kick off the series with a conversation about how everything came together, kind of to set the tone. And I always jo- enjoy these uh, these origin stories, so to speak. So I was hoping you could take us back to the beginning. I, I listened to an interview you did with Device Talks a few years ago at one of our conferences. I believe there was a a basketball Basketball game sort of was a, was the key event to the uh, the creation of intuitive surgical. Can you take us back into the uh, into the early nineties?
1: Sure, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll, I'll clean up the basketball game story. a <laughs> uh, The uh, I I, uh, I got introduced to the technology at a place called Stanford Research Institute. Uh, sure. It's uh, Northern California. Uh, you use uh, things from Stanford Research, Research Institute, SRI, all the time. Uh, SRI is credited for inventing the computer mouse. Um, the uh, voice recognition technology that's in Siri was invented there. And uh, a team uh, was working on, one of a few teams in the world, working on robotic-assisted surgery early on. Uh, they predated they me. I, I joined SRI um, coming out of graduate school as a postdoc in uh, 1992, uh, there was a group for robotic-assisted surgery that had been originally funded by uh, some SRI funds and NIH, later funded by DARPA, mm-hmm. and uh, that group was in process. Um, it was uh, started by a gentleman named Phil Green and, and later led by others. And uh, that basketball story, I was uh, working there in 1992-93. I ran into the head of that lab. Uh, playing basketball. And we got to know each other on the sidelines. And he was looking for help uh, in a certain kind of algorithms and mathematics that I was trained in. Uh, Only in Silicon Valley do you have that conversation on the the sidelines of a basketball court. And uh, he invited me to come over and look at the kind of work they were doing. And it was the early prototypes for the kinds of technology that you see in our products
0: today. Now, what was driving that early effort? Was this a, a military initi- initiative first to sort of uh develop a, a battlefield robot or what was who came along and said we need to find a way to to assist surgeons with robots?
1: Yeah, it's kind of an oft uh, often repeated myth uh, that that uh, the first application or first thought was a military application. Oh, okay. I'm glad I asked. But yeah, the first the first thoughts were for uh, precision surgery, they, folks at SRI, they predate me. And by the way, I'm not a founder at Intuitive either, just to be clear. Sure. Um, they uh, Their original thoughts early on were that they could advance uh, manual laparoscopy and other precision surgery applications um, using this kind of technology. They also thought there were remote surgery applications, as might be applied in battlefield environments. So uh, there is a story with uh, DARPA and and the lead at DARPA, Dr. Rick Satava, that, that does intersect with SRI early on. But uh, it wasn't that that was the first thought. Uh, both those thoughts were present in that early group over time. They had some funding from different sources, including SRI, including NIH, and ultimately the largest funding came from, from uh, Dr. Satava and uh, DARPA.
0: So what was that moment that you experienced the technology and you, and you saw this could, this could be something?
1: So they were uh, they were working on um, getting the what amounts to the control systems right, making the the uh, the system that they were developing this roboticist system uh, intuitive, making it feel right. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had invited me to come over and see it. I had not seen it before, and they gave me a little task. Uh, the The project lead, a gentleman named Ajit Shaw, Ajit said, "Here, try this." And he he handed me a set of loops, uh, and he asked me to to do some suturing by hand. Um, kind of under magnification. And I'm not bad with my hands. I had some prior experience in kind of micro assembly and other things. And, uh, but I never had any medical exposure. That was my first exposure was to suture back together a femoral artery on a rat in a lab. And so I tried that manually and I got made a little progress, but it was really hard. And then he sat me down on their prototype. First time I had seen it, which had a console and uh, the surgical environment with, with uh, uh, robotic manipulators for the surgeon and then action at the at the patient. And I did the same activity with zoomed, scaled up vision and, and uh, with robotic assistance. And uh, it was just immediate, immediately obvious to me. I stood up at that moment and went, wow, this is unbelievably easier uh, <laughs> and, and really cool. So it was one of those things where a demo was worth uh, more than a thousand words, and after that, I I went back to my boss. I was involved in a different program, and and I asked if he would support my transfer to that program, and he did. And from there on, I was I was all in. So it was a lightning strike moment for me. And uh, some serendipity that I had run into a JIT and that he had invited me to come join that effort.
0: That's fantastic. Those moments are are, are, are wondrous. So, you you mentioned you weren't a founder of Intuitive, it was founded in 95. You, you, though, joined in 96. So, you certainly came in on the early side of things. Uh, How did you uh, make that transition? How did you decide to join a company?
1: Yeah, I, I was younger at that time. I, I was uh, enjoying SRI and uh, I met the founders. Uh, at the time, there were three uh, three folks who had founded that company, <coughs> Intuitive. Um, one uh, uh, medical founder, one a technologist and, and then a person from the venture capital side. And uh, I got to know the technologist founder, his name is Rob Young, and uh, he had invited me to to come join the company. And it, it took me a while to say yes. My initial instinct was it was going well at SRI, I enjoyed the work. I wasn't quite sure what, what the business startup might look like. And ultimately, uh, after some back and forth, uh, the um, the person on the venture capital side uh, took me out to coffee. We sat down and we talked and, and he, he convinced me that the experience would be worth it um, mm-hmm. regardless of where I headed in my career. That's a gentleman named John Freund. And, and so John uh, asked me to come and I ultimately said, yes, I came in as a control system uh, engineer or algorithms person. Uh, and I joined as the 11th person in the company and the 10th uh, technical person, the 10th engineer, uh, which was uh, delightful. I'm glad I
0: said yes. So, how did then did you? How did the CEO position become available to you? How did that? How did that happen? And then we can start talking about the company. But I'm kind of interested in following your path a bit.
1: Yeah. So uh, I I started off on the technical side. Uh, after a couple of years, uh, we were um, working hard and growing, uh, and uh, I was asked to lead uh, uh, the algorithms group initially, and then a the software group. I, I did not aspire to be a CEO. That wasn't something that that was in my in my plan, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, our our uh, first uh, outside CEO, uh, Lonnie Smith, uh, came in. I got to know him in 1997, uh, and over the years, he uh, was a fantastic mentor. He had given me additional uh, responsibilities in management. At, at some point, asked me to be uh, head of operations, uh, and then president and COO. Uh, so I went through that process uh, in 2010 um, as part of a, a planned transition with Lonnie. He stepped up to uh, just be chairman of the board. He had been pre- uh, chairman and CEO, and uh, invited me to be CEO. So I became CEO in 2010 and have been so since. Amazing.
0: And how was that uh, that transition for you? Did uh, did how did you? How different is it as a job? Maybe it must be wildly different. I mean, and how did you how did you sort of come to uh, uh, manage those differences and and become the CEO of a of a large significant company?
1: One of the things that uh, I learned early on uh, was, especially in this space, uh, surgical robots and the kind of technologies that we develop, uh, it's not a, a one-person show ever. Uh, mm-hmm. They're complex technologies. You need really great people in all sorts of different places in the organization, from engineers to training people to uh, software to your your business systems and everything else. And uh, early on, I, I learned... Um, surround yourself with, with people who are better than you, who are just outstanding um, in order to get the job done. And we were lucky. Our early staff were very, very capable and extremely collaborative. Uh, and that that was uh, kind of drilled into me uh, early on. Uh, as I took on other leadership roles, for example, uh, head of operations, I was not a manufacturing person by by training. I had come out of this applied research background. And, and so my first instincts were to go... Um, find people who are just world-class uh, outstanding people and invite them to join mm-hmm. a common story. And we did that. And, and CEO is no different, whether it's uh, chief medical officer or our, our folks who run our, our business systems or our commercial organizations, it's really been uh, find people who are just outstanding in the field and create an environment in which we can succeed together. Um, so in that sense, uh, it was a continuation. Uh, the issue is a little bit different in the role that I play. I think uh, our job here or a job at the CEO position is make sure we have a strategy that uh, delivers customer value for the long term, make sure we have an organization that is capable, deeply competent um, and, and well led and then make sure that the economics work for the company, that,
0: mm-hmm. that, that it can self-sustain. And, and so that's kind of the transition. Understanding that you weren't CEO at the time from the late 90s into the 2000s, I'm hoping, though, you can still sort of uh, paint a picture for us of those those early days when it wasn't, uh, maybe you can characterize the reception that that intuitive and robotic surgery received from the, the healthcare community. But from my perspective, it was never 100% uh, certain that hospitals wanted it, that surgeons wanted it, uh, that they felt they needed it. Do you agree with that sort of assessment and and how did intuitive sort of go about building support and and helping people to see the, the, the benefits of the surgery? All right. So as you can see, I ended that interview right when we started talking about where intuitive sort of uh, fits into the healthcare system, where surgical robotics fits into the healthcare system. Uh, a long time has passed since uh, since the uh, the era that I'm referring to in that at that question, or at least the time I'm sort of directing at. And uh, we will get into that in much, much more, much, much more of the future at Device Talks West. So Gary Guthard has uh, has left nothing off the table when I talked to him about or his office about the things that I want to talk about. So it should be a very engaging conversation. And I hope you will join us on October 19th, uh, just after lunch. And I'm checking the agenda now because I guess it's not as burned in deeply as my brain into my brain as I thought. It starts at 1.20, ends at 2 o'clock on October 19th. So uh, please do join us. And uh, listen to where Intuitive is going, or, or as we call it, how Intuitive intends to remain surgical robotics leader. So, in this next clip, again, I have a, a, a great conversation, or portion of a great conversation, I have with Leslie Trigg. She's a she's a riot. I enjoy talking with Leslie, and I'm excited about this conversation as well. Uh, similarly, I uh, I propose things to, that I wanted to talk to Leslie about. Uh, including Outset's recent, uh, let's say, engagement with the FDA uh, that uh, that slowed their uh, their roll a little bit. Uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about uh, how Outset is really changing uh, how dialysis is delivered. We'll talk about uh, the challenges of being a public company, and and Outset has faced a few of those as well. But really, it's going to be a uh, a future forward sort of conversation as to where this space is, is headed, where hospital is home, where hospital care or care at home is headed, and uh, what Outset is, is doing to uh, restore a sense of self for dialysis patients. One thing they've done is, uh, is they've really uh, centered on human, cent- or really focused on human-centered design, making their Tableau device easy for, for people to use, and we'll actually have a couple of Tableaus uh, on, on site, not during Leslie's conversation, but at 10.50 a.m., we'll have a panel put on by outset uh, professionals called driving innovation through human centered design. So uh, we'll talk about how they uh, how they created a, a product that folks can uh, can use safely and effectively uh, in their homes. So it's an important topic. Uh we're hearing a lot about human centered design lately and uh, this will be a great opportunity for uh, designers to to understand uh, what what outset did. So in addition to that we'll have uh, conversations about uh, the FDA, with uh, Kwame Elmer of MedTech Impact Partners and Jennifer McCaney of UCLA BioDesign. We've got a great panel featuring uh, Leanne Taplitsky of Zimmer Biomet and Bill Hunter of uh, Canary Medical. And that conversation will be led by Lisa Sunin of uh, Venture Valkyrie Consulting. So uh, there's there's a lot of things I'm not going to hit upon. We've got keynotes with Brett Wall of Medtronic, he is executive vice president and president of neuroscience, and he'll be talking about bioelectronic medicine. We'll have uh, a keynote presentation by Giovanni Napoli. Of Medtronic talking about the DNA of innovation. We'll have a DNA, excuse me. We'll have a, a keynote interview the day before that. Chris uh, Newmarker is leading with Celine Martin, company group chairman of uh, cardiovascular and specialty services at Johnson and Johnson. And the whole day is opened up with an interview with uh, Deb Kilpatrick. She is coach, ceo and executive chair of Evidation Health, and that interview is again being led by uh, conducted rather by Lisa Sunan of Venture Valkyrie. So uh, I, I could scroll scroll through this, uh, this agenda, and uh, I'd be here all day just sort of reading it to you. I do invite you just to go to devicetalks.com and check it out. It really is great, and uh, I'm really, really proud of it, and I would love to see you there and would love to see you enjoy it. So let's hear this clip, that uh, portion of the interview I did with Leslie Trigg, CEO of Outset Medical. So let's focus now on on your company. Take a moment just to kind of give us the quick overview of Outset's mission and Tableau's role in improving dialysis for patients. Where are you able to help? What is your product able to do?
2: Sure. Happy to do that. So our sort of reason for being is to reduce the cost and complexity of dialysis for the provider while radically elevating the care experience for the patient. Why that's important, a couple of reasons it's important. Number one, Dialysis is is a big problem getting bigger. It is fueled by hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. And those are sort of three trend lines that we we know are continuing to go up and to the right. As a result of that, just in the United States alone, there are well over 550,000 people on dialysis. And that number is many times bigger around the world. When patients have to go on dialysis, and this is chronic dialysis for the rest of your life, it is not optional. You're going to go to dialysis three times a week for a couple of hours each time, COVID or no COVID, economic downturn or no downturn, whatever's going on in the world, you're still going to go to dialysis. It is life-sustaining. And the environment in which we entered and got started in this now, gosh, 10 years ago, was one that was not at all hospitable to new technology, in fact, There really hadn't been a new device for something like home dialysis, let's say, in over 15 years when we eventually got approval for home. And it was kind of a landscape of these like mini equipment monopolies and a very static service model that also hadn't changed. I mean, most, most patients are told you're going to show up on these days at this time, you're going to sit in this chair and be served by this person, kind of whether you like it or whether it's convenient for you or not. And so the moral imperative of the company, and we certainly have a a financial imperative and promises, as I said earlier, that we make to shareholders to earn the right to deliver on the moral imperative is this, which ultimately is to deliver choice and convenience to, I'll I'll say the consumer, to any of us who find ourselves or our relatives needing um, dialysis for the rest of their life. And the reason why I think choice and control and flexibility is so vital is I think that it's fundamental to sort of personal liber- liberty identity and self-worth we control every element of our day most elements most decisions were in charge but when you start on dialysis much of that choice and personal autonomy is taken from you and what i've experienced talking to many 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 people on dialysis is that it really starts to erode at their very sense of self when those individuals have been able to take the opportunity to be back in control which is at the home You decide you're back in the driver's seat. What days you're going to dialyze, what times are convenient for you. It enables people to go back to work. The unemployment rate, or I should say, the employment rate in the dialysis population at large is 19%. That's not because everybody's over the age of 80. It's because you're told this is when the clinic has availability for you. And if that's one o'clock in the afternoon, that may not be consistent with your ability to stay employed. So, so again, being back at home, you can dialyze at 5 a.m. or 10 p.m. or 7 p.m., whenever you want. But I think more important than schedule flexibility is sort of this, fun, to me, a fundamental human right to, as I said, liberty and a, and, a, and a fundamental sense of identity and self-worth that we don't realize is actually really very much tied to our ability to make decisions for ourselves.
0: That's amazing. No, in reading one of the stories on your website, the gentleman said that I think it was three times a week, five hours a day that he would have to go and get it. And it was like he called it a part time job. Mm-hmm. And that really resonated. And it kind of sounds like and feels like almost a diabetes community where someone is called upon to make 300 decisions a day to monitor their lives. They lost control of a big part of their lives. So it sounds like a very similar sort of thread with dialysis.
2: You know, you make a great point with with diabetes, because that analogy came to mind for me very quickly, just looking at dialysis before I knew much about it was, well, how is this so much further behind diabetes? Because patients who do have type one or type two, they're completely enabled by technology. And that's technology that continue to get better and better and better and better every single year. That's been missing from dialysis. Number two, they're at home. And I don't know everything there is to know about the history of diabetes management, but there was a time when patients would go into these diabetes clinics, right? And and those still exist, but those clinics today are all aimed at allowing patients to just manage diabetes in their home as something that's just a part of their life, not ruling their life. And that felt really different to me than what was going on in dialysis. And so I think uh, diabetes actually has really served as as a North star to me as what's possible. I know these things are possible, Because service providers paired up and partnered with technology providers have created and made that so. And we can do the same thing in dialysis.
0: That's terrific. I was intrigued by the stage you set when you said that there were these forces already in dialysis that sort of made entry difficult for new players. As someone entering this field, what drove you? Was it, we have this great technology, we must push it forward? Is it the moral imperative that you sort of mentioned earlier? I mean, certainly financial comes into it to a degree that everything does when you're starting a company. But what do you tell yourself that convinces you that you're going to change this ecosystem and sort of run through these forces that may be trying to keep you out?
2: I would say it's not just one thing, of course, as it never is in life. As I reflect, listening to your question, reflecting back, I think it was a combination of naivete. Let's be honest. I, (laughs) I really had no idea what I was up against. I can tell you about all these forces now in great detail because I've been in the space for 10 years, but Mm -hmm. so did not know what I know today, but so, so a healthy dose of naivete and a healthier dose of anger. I just was pissed. I just, (laughs) and I started getting pissed the, The really the first time that I had the opportunity to visit with someone, he was a Vietnam vet. He was living in a mobile home in San Jose and one of our early medical advisors had uh, enabled me to connect with him. And I was able to watch him set up this one home device, the only one that had ever been approved. And it just really pissed me off because it was needlessly complex. It was needlessly burdensome. And I think coming out of the cardiology space in you know companies like Iden and others, I knew how fast, diabetes is another one, I knew how fast the technology was changing and being improved for the consumers and the patients that it served. And why is that not happening here? Like we are making people's lives needlessly onerous. So that's kind of where the anger came from. And then I would say probably the third element for me, um, and if my parents ever listen to this, they'll, they'll probably laugh. Like I did spend like much of my high school years grounded. <laughs> so I don't love being told not to do something. And and so when early on these impediments some of the, I'll just call it the attitudes from some of the incumbents started piling up. Mm-hmm. And it started to feel more and more like, that is so cute that you guys are going to try to do this. And you will just see how that goes for you. So that tends to um, inspire and motivate me. So pro- probably some combination of those three things.
0: All right. Well, that is a wrap. We're going to uh, just, uh, just, Stop the podcast right here. And uh, I do want to thank you for uh, for listening. I hope you enjoyed these little clips. I hope if you want to hear more, go to the uh, device talks.com page. You can find them there. You go to device talks.com. You can find them there. Uh, device talks Leslie's interview was on Device Talks Weekly, and Gary Guthert's interview was on Intuitive Talks. So, once again, uh, I, I'm leaving things out that I really want to talk to you about, but uh, frankly, I'm tired and I'm ready to go home. And uh, and I just want you to come to the conference and enjoy it all, or at least go to devicetalks.com to check it out. Uh, if you're in the area and you want to attend, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, and I'll I'll try to make it happen for you. It would be lo- great to see you there. So uh, do go to devicetalks.com, check out the agenda, find me on LinkedIn, uh, find me on Twitter. I am at medtechTom tom. Um, Find Chris Newmarker on Twitter at Newmarker. And of course, Chris is on LinkedIn as well. Chris Newmarker, as in a new marker. And uh, that's it. That's a wrap. We're uh, excited to see uh, the hundreds of you who are coming to uh, Device Talks West in Santa Clara. Uh, it's going to be a great couple of days. And uh, if you haven't yet made plans to come, please do. It would be great to see you there. And again, reach out on LinkedIn. That's a wrap, folks. Uh, tune in next week. We will have an episode of the Device Talks Weekly podcast with a special guest who I initially planned to have today, but had to push that interview off. But uh, he's got some big news. And uh, we'll also be putting out an episode of Intuitive Talks and an episode of Medtronic Talks. So a lot of great podcasts coming your way over the next week. Uh, Device Talks Weekly will come to you a little later next week. It may not be on Friday, it may be on Thursday. And then we'll try to get our our rhythm back uh, the following week after the conference. So once again, thanks for uh, being part of the Device Talks family. Thanks for uh, your kindness and your support. And really would love to see you at Device Talks West in Santa Clara.